Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you kindly, sir. Good afternoon. Welcome. Final day of the month of November. Gives you 24 shopping days left till Christmas. <laughs> yeah, Nate's looking at me like, I didn't need to be reminded about that. Yeah, I know. Time flies as you're having fun, right? Still working on finishing off the last of the Thanksgiving turkey leftovers. And here we're already pitching Christmas. It'll be here before you know it. All right. Well, in any event, good to have you with us today. Much to talk about on the program. And I want to lead off tonight on a more serious topic because it's capturing attention across the nation and across the planet, for that matter. Just when we thought it was safe to go back out, right? It seems as if we are being handed yet another challenge in relationship to COVID-19. And I want to underscore something personally at the start of this conversation that I realize there are some in this audience that have great aversion to the notion of vaccinations. I'm also of the belief that you may have arrived at that conclusion quite erroneously. And we're going to find out from our first guest tonight whether or not that aversion taken in the macro is contributory to the pain of COVID continuing on and on as we are about to approach the second anniversary. Joining me is Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus at UC Berkeley. He is also Professor Emeriti Academy, the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Disease and Vaccinology, and serves as chair of the editorial board of the UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications. And Professor Schwartzberg, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Um, You're welcome. Certainly, we've got a lot of folks talking as we're watching news across Europe, countries like Italy, Germany, Great Britain, now reporting the evidence of a new variant. And just Friday, the country of Israel said, that's it. We're going on lockdown. No foreign tourists may enter in the country for the next 14 days. Their response to the Omicron variant, um, some would suggest uh, maybe a little bit heavy-handed, but I have to wonder, as you look back over this pandemic that will soon approach two years that we have been dealing with this, my goodness, uh, you know, we were told in the beginning this would be over before you knew it, and now it's almost becoming the norm. What is your sense, first off, in terms of your understanding of um, how dangerous Omicron is, and does it pale, does something like the variant Delta variant pale in comparison? Well, we don't we don't know the answer to that question. We won't know the answer to that question for a little while. In a couple of weeks, we'll have some answers that I think will be guiding us in the right direction. But at this point in time, the best I can say is, or the best anybody really can say, is that there are certain changes in the structure of the genetics of this virus that suggest that it could evade our immune system, that we have uh, evade the immunity we get from previous, we got from previous infection or evade the immunity we get from vaccine, and that it may be much more transmissible than Delta. But these are just conjectures at this time, and there's an awful lot of speculation, but nobody really knows for sure. 
Is there a sense here that this is like the burglar who uh, once they've tried to break into your house by maybe breaking a window and you board that up that they've decided, well, I'm going to find another way in? I mean, is there a sense here that that in particular uh, these types of of diseases uh, uh, mutate in a way that they're trying to get around the barriers that we put up, such as the immunizations? I, I love that metaphor. It's really a perfect one. Um, what the virus is trying to do what all life forms do on this planet, and that is it's trying to survive. And the only way it can survive is by infecting people who aren't immune to it. Uh, that is, who are susceptible to getting infected. And so it has to find and keep finding susceptible people. And as long as there are susceptible people, it's going to keep going. And if people are immune to the virus, it's going to try and find a way around that immunity. And that's the big question now. Has it found a way around our immunity? And we just can't answer that at this point. And maybe therein lies an important point of explanation that you can elaborate on, Professor Schwartzberg, and that is that sense that some people are frustrated. Why aren't we getting answers sooner? Why didn't we get a vaccination sooner? Why don't we know all the answers sooner? But I suppose in the end, there's a degree to which only time, as the old saying goes, only time will tell in terms of, well, if you've been infected and you get reinfected, will there be long-term impact on your on your body's immune system or the way your body reacts to further exposure to COVID-19? And I guess the only way to ascertain what the long-term impacts are going to be is to wait long-term. Well, you're right. But there's an irony here. And let's take Delta as an example. We knew about Delta in October of 2020, but it wasn't doing very much. Nobody paid much attention to it. We didn't pay much attention to it until it exploded in India in the late winter, early spring, and caused so much devastation there. And then we thought about it a lot, but then sort of went on the back burner until it exploded then in England, and then came to the United States in late June. And so it was around for a long time, but we didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Now let's look at Omicron. Um, it occurred in Botswana and in South Africa. Botswana apparently was the first case, but we don't know that with certainty. But that first case that was identified was less than three weeks ago. It turns out that South Africa, the country of South Africa, has an exceptionally good program of identifying new variants. And they were able to identify it quickly, and they notified the world very quickly. So this virus is only, this particular variant of the virus has only been around, at least to our knowledge, for a few weeks. Delta had been around for months before we dealt with it. So while it seems like time is going so slowly to get the answers that we want, it's because we identified it so early that and brought it to everybody's attention that it's now on the front page of the news. There is some talk about a few drug manufacturers. I, I think Moderna in specific uh, is doing research right now, even as we're hearing the government suggesting booster shots, that they may reformulate the vaccination to be able to include uh, whatever is uh, peculiar or e- unique about the Omicron variant. Um, how much time would you anticipate from a practical standpoint uh, development of something like that? to then make it available for widespread distribution. How how much time are we talking about, potentially? 
Well, we, we would be talking about probably six weeks to develop the, vac- the vaccine, but to produce enough and to make it and to distribute it, we're talking about months, probably at least three, maybe four or five months. Thank goodness for this new mRNA technology because it allows us to develop these vaccines incredibly quickly. If we had the old technology, we'd be talking about years. So it would be a matter of months before we would develop a, we would have a vaccine that was going into millions of people's arms. But let me just um, answer this question a little differently, and that is, we don't know that we're going to need a new vaccine from Moderna or Pfizer or any of these other companies. The reason why I say that is because it's very likely that the immunity we have from the vaccines we currently have, the two mRNA vaccines, the immunity we have from those, particularly with the booster, will be very active against this virus, Omicron. The question is how active or how, how good the vaccines, vaccine-induced immunity will be. We can't answer that. We'll have a better answer maybe in a couple of weeks. But I think it's very likely that those people who are fully vaccinated will have some degree of protection against Omicron, whether it's as good as it is against Delta or whether it's not quite as good or only so-so against against Omicron. We'll just have to wait and see. But I think we'll have good activity against it. From a virology standpoint, does it... Is it troubling to you that this is coming right as we're at the cusp of winter season, holiday season, people are traveling, people are in enclosed spaces more, people are gathering in larger groups. Uh, Many folks enjoyed a Thanksgiving holiday um, a couple of days, three, four days ago for the first time in, um, you know, two years time. And now we're seeing this hit. Is it of concern that as we don't really know the totality of just how communicable it is or how severe it may be for someone to uh, be exposed to it if they've not been inoculated, that this is coming at a very inopportune time? It's a very inopportune time. You're making an excellent point. Uh, Remember what happened last year. It was roughly about 10 days after Thanksgiving that things just exploded here. And it's understandable why they did explode. The weather's getting colder. People are spending more time inside. And we've got these holidays. This is the biggest holiday season of the year. And... It's an important time for people, and they get together, they travel, and they're indoors. This is, from the virus's perspective, it couldn't ask for anything more in terms of the ability to spread. And, you know, it's also psychologically very difficult during the holiday season to have something else to worry about again. So it it comes at a cruel time of the year and a very opportune time for the virus. We're visiting today with Professor John Schwartzberg. Again, he's Clinical Professor Emeritus, UC Berkeley, Professor Emeriti Academy in the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, and Chair of the Editorial Board of UC Berkeley Health and Wellness. We'll take a brief time. I'll come back to more of our conversation. The next big question is, do you wait to receive the booster shot? Should you move on that now? And what if some of the research into, uh, well, some might say sort of, um, well, it ranges, I suppose, between quack science and and maybe potential um, 
opportunities to treat cases of Delta with things like ivermectin. We'll talk about a study that's going on right now. Our conversation today with Professor John Schwartzberg continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation with Professor John Schwartzberg continues, clinical professor emeritus, UC Berkeley. We've been talking about the emergence of a new variant, Omicron, which um, is already beginning to appear in Europe. It's been detected in Germany, Great Britain, and Italy. Israel has announced, effective last Friday, that they are closing down inbound traffic to all foreigners and Israeli nationals returning to the country must wait in quarantine for a minimum of three days before rejoining the population. And, of course, all of this coming at a time, as Professor Schwartzberg points out, that we're in the holiday season, it's colder, we're gathering together, we're indoors more, uh, creating almost a Petri dish for not only the the spread of some of these variants, but certainly the ability of COVID to dig in even deeper. And one of the ironies, of course, I, I think, Dr. Professor Schwartzberg, is that we had hoped by now much of this would be behind us. Let me ask you a difficult question that I know some listening that are steadfast anti-vaxxers, for whatever reason, are probably going to bristle at. But is this particular pandemic going to continue to, as it has essentially so far, take on a life of its own unless we get to a stage where a more significant percentage of the population is inoculated? Yes, it will. Um, The virus is going to try to survive by finding, and the only way it can do that is by finding people who are not immune to it. And if it gets into somebody who is immune to it, it's not going to replicate. And for the virus to, to uh, form variants, the only way it can do that is to replicate and replicate and replicate. So by having people immune to this virus, it means that people are no longer a viral factory or a variant factory. And that's the way we're going to ultimately control this. Ultimately, we are going to control this virus. We're either going to control it by... Uh, being protected with vaccination, or we can control it by essentially everybody who's not vaccinated to get infected and hopefully survive and hopefully not have long COVID and hopefully not have any other complications from it. Um, But ultimately, that's what's going to happen. So it's really a question of whether we want to stop the spread of this virus by immunization or whether we want to stop it by just getting people infected. That latter option um, is one that certainly has been advocated by many. There was a lot of talk early on in the previous administration about developing so-called herd immunity, uh, uh, immunity uh, not recognizing perhaps that in order for the herd to become immune, that also necessitates a good percentage of that herd uh, to become infected and to succumb to the effects of COVID-19. And my goodness, I, I wonder if anybody, expert or amateur, could have imagined this time two years ago that we would be talking about more than three quarters of a million Americans dead 
because of COVID-19. And at this rate, um, you know, continuing largely uh, uncorralled as a good percentage of the U.S. population refuses to become um, uh, vaccinated, that we could be looking at, uh, you know, a a million people uh, by the time we get it well into uh, 2022. I I have to wonder, though, when you when you hear things like natural immunity, we know that there's a recent study showed that of 1,300 cases of individuals that had been infected, that once they were reinfected, that natural immunity meant that only four of them required hospitalizations. But does it concern you from a medical standpoint in terms of we just don't know what the long-term impacts are going to be once you've received it, meaning you can get it? recover from it. But how do we know that there aren't going to be long-term um, side effects that, that that if you don't succumb to them today, could be contributory to, at the very least, a shortened lifespan later on? This is an enormously important question. We do know that people who have very severe disease wind up in the hospital, sometimes wind up in the ICU, sometimes being on a, on a ventilator, we know that permanent damage is often done, particularly to their lungs, and those lungs are going to be compromised for the rest of their lives. But there's the issue of long COVID that I briefly mentioned before. This is a very poorly understood entity, but it's, it's frighteningly common in people who recover from COVID. And sometimes people who only have a mild case of COVID and recover from it develop long COVID. These are symptoms of brain, what people describe as brain fog or confusion, um, weakness, fatigue, um, body aches. There's a long list of complications, and these go on and on and on. Now, and some people were seeing that after six months, they tend to get better. Some people after eight months, some people now at a year, they're starting to get better. Unfortunately, we're seeing people uh, well beyond a year now, and no signs of getting better. So this is of a significant concern. Um, Best data suggests that roughly about um, 20 to 30 percent of people who recover from COVID do have persistent symptoms consistent with long COVID. One of the the good things is that um, we don't see very much long COVID in people who have been fully vaccinated and then get a breakthrough infection. We do see some cases, but not nearly at the rate that we see it in people who are not fully vaccinated. It's being conducted at Vanderbilt University. Um, this is with regard to the drug ivermectin, which I understand was formulated to deal with parasites. And certainly um, this particular disease, COVID, is not in and of itself a parasite, which made me wonder why there was advocacy for either ivermectin or, for that matter, the malaria treatment drug uh, hydroxychloroquine. That said, it it seems to me, and maybe you can shed some light on this, uh, Professor Schwartzberg, it, it seems to me that I, I kind of equated to my house catches on fire, so I grab a bucket and I dip it into my pool and I start throwing water on the fire. Moments later, my neighbor, who happens to be a fireman, says, here, I've got a fire hose. Let me give you that to put out the fire. And I say, no, 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 thanks. I've got my bucket here. I've got my swimming pool. I'll put the fire out on my own. And of course, before long, 
the entire house burns to the ground. Is that an analogy in part to some that have tried to look at other alternative treatments, be it ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, as an alternative to just saying, get the vaccine. It's formulated to battle COVID. So why are you trying to put the fire out with a bucket as opposed to a fire hose? It's, it's a good analogy. The only problem with the analogy is that um, with the bucket and with water, we know water puts out fire, but it's just not enough water. But with ivermectin and with hydroxychloroquine, we know that they don't work against this virus. Um, so it would be actually throwing air onto the fire as opposed to water because they're not they're just not going to do anything. You know, the hydroxychloroquine has been very carefully studied in terms of its efficacy against uh, the virus that causes COVID. And not only doesn't it work, but it does cause some serious heart problems. So uh, please stay away from that. Ivermectin is a fabulous drug for some worm infections and some protozoal infections. It even is very good against the mite that causes scabies. But it has no evidence, there's no evidence in terms of good clinical studies that are double-blinded and controlled that show that ivermectin does anything to prevent COVID nor treat it. I've seen, I've, I've seen cases of people who have been taking... Is this the equivalent, Professor, of somebody who says, well, I got a severe cold, but I started taking 4,000 milligrams of vitamin C every day, and that cured my cold. Is it, is it almost a, a placebo effect in that sense? Um, at best, it's a placebo effect, yes. At the end of the day, final question, um, with regard to the emergence of the Omicron variant, um, as you indicate, it's going to take time, research, before something can be developed and and brought forward. In the meanwhile, for people that have um, been vaccinated but are awaiting um, the booster shot, would you recommend from a medical standpoint to not wait and to go ahead and get the booster shot as soon as it's available to you? Absolutely. If you're a candidate for the booster shot, Please get it now. It's the perfect time to get it. I think people are forgetting that we're in the midst still of a Delta pandemic right now. The, the only virus that's causing, the only variant that's causing disease in the United States now is Delta. And in some states, we're very fortunate California is not one of them, nor is the Bay Area. But in some states, uh, Delta is causing tremendous damage to people. Michigan, for example, where the hospitals are starting to fill up with cases. People have please remember, go into this holiday season being very careful. There is still a Delta pandemic going on, and we don't want you to get Delta. So and we have vaccines to prevent that. We have the booster to boost you if you need it. Please do that. Some sound medical advice coming from Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus, UC Berkeley, Professor Emeriti Academy, School of Public Health, the Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, and Chair of the Editorial Board, UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications. Thank you so much, Professor, for your time and the education. And, and I would just add a personal note to what he said. I realize that some people love to gravitate to the political give and take and love to turn this into a civil rights issue, personal freedom issue, I get to do with my body what I want issue. 
some point you've got to, um, and I'm, I'm going to say tough words here, at some point you've got to face the stark reality that continuing to do the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results or better results is just, well, it's foolish. Might even be considered by some to be insane. If we want this to end, we need to end it. And pretending that it's not there won't make it go away because at the end of the day, this disease doesn't care about your politics. It just cares whether or not you're willing to be a host. So if you find yourself to be the hospitable type and you're happy to host an infectious infectious disease that may wind up killing you, well, I guess that's your own decision. Just in the process, try not to take others that you love with you. They may want to hang around for a while. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I was born to a couple who uh, both, both partners were married to other people. They both had families, and um, so when I came along, um, it wasn't really feasible for me to stay with either family. I went home from the hospital with my adoptive parents. I grew up um, treating them as my mom and dad. To me, they were my mom and dad. I was adopted when I was two weeks old. When I was 30, um, I started thinking about um, learning a little bit more about my background since I had a closed adoption, and I was married and getting thinking about having a child of my own. And so I asked my parents if they would be willing to help me find my birth mother. And I ended up meeting my birth mother and learning more about my story. And so what I found out was that she was 15 when she became pregnant with me. My mom's family wasn't able to raise me. They didn't even consider parenting. So really the only options that were presented to my birth mom were aborting me or adopting, releasing me for adoption. My birth mother was 17 when she gave me up, and I'm 17 as well. Um, and so I feel like, you know, my birth mother had to make a lot of decisions at a young age. Um, at 17, you're not very mature. You're not thinking very well. But to, you know, come to the decision of putting your child up for adoption is something very commendable. My adoptive parents desperately wanted to have children and they chose to adopt me and to give all their love to me as their child. In a way, there's something missing, if you like. Um, but on the other hand, um, there's something gained, which is very precious to me as well. And welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. I want to turn a corner for a moment and pivot to a very important topic. If you've been watching the news and who hasn't noticed over the last many, many months, what between cases related to changes in abortion laws in states like Georgia, certainly the Texas case, now the United States Supreme Court, uh, bringing further focus into this issue, raising concern at, at multiple levels. And sometimes that concern also raises some confusion. When the... Planned Parenthoods of the world talk about choice. What they really mean is, do it my way. The notion of fully informing a woman in a crisis pregnancy, in an unplanned pregnancy, as to what all of the totality of options are, well, quite frankly, that just doesn't happen. In fact, in a state like California, we've even passed laws against it trying to somehow manipulate women in a fashion that we prevent them from making a fully informed decision. 
It is a crisis, sadly, of our own making. It's been with us since 1973. There's many ways in which this needs to be addressed, but I believe one of the most important ways is for we as the church to take an active role in saying to women, if you want to know what your choices are, let's be honest about this. Explain to you the totality of your choices and then not stand back with harsh criticism, but rather stand with them, make ourselves available to help support them through that very difficult decision and ultimately, hopefully, guide them into making the right one. Joining me now is Peter Finter. Peter is the board chairman of Real Options. And Peter, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Craig. This is a topic that some would say, particularly if, if we sat down and had a conversation with any of the leadership of Planned Parenthood or NARAL or any of those groups, would say, wait a minute, two guys are on the radio talking about abortion? How does that involve you in the least? What do you say to that kind of criticism? Mm. Well, there are precious few uh, pregnancies that don't involve men, uh, as far as as far as we know. Duly noted. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and men do have a responsibility to care about what happens next. Um, sadly, as you have been pointing out, many of the women that we get to stand alongside are lacking that support from the men in their lives. Uh, when crisis comes, uh, men sadly often are nowhere to be seen, leaving the women to handle these issues on their own. So part of what our mission is at Real Options is to get alongside those very women in their place of crisis, as well as Ahead of time, we also are active in education in our high schools, on the campuses, at our universities and colleges, um, but particularly for women who are in that moment of crisis, who are needing that support and that help. Men do have a role to play, and sometimes it's, it's less on the front lines and it's more behind the scenes, but we absolutely need, as men, to take responsibility for the consequences of our actions and to be willing to count that cost. Historically, Peter, do you think that women have been denied the full truth? And by that, I mean that we know certainly there is a financial interest that some organizations have in keeping abortion rates high because, quite frankly, it's how they make their money. And I wonder if, from your perspective, have women largely been denied the full story? When we talk about choice, that would suggest to me that there might be option one, two, three, and four. And yet, oftentimes, in the mainstream media, and certainly what we hear propaganda-wise coming from um, certain organizations that I won't mention, Planned Parenthood, that there seems to be a notion that there isn't any choice whatsoever. Just follow through with the abortion, because this may come at an inconvenient time in your life, and so this is the easy answer. But is that really denying women the, the power, in a sense, to make the right decision for themselves and their child? I think you're making a very important point, Craig, which is that you know there are influences in our society which have affected the way that men and women think about uh, pregnancy and think about abortion in particular, um, to the point where you know standing against that is in some way putting you outside of the mainstream. And for many people, they just haven't ever really considered those alternatives, considered what it might mean to carry their baby to term, consider what it might mean potentially to make an adoption plan for a child that they know that they're not in a position to care for and, and raise on their own. Those options typically are not in the mainstream. They're just not out in the in the media at large. And as a result, many women that we, uh, that we help um, come to us feeling that they're trapped feeling that they don't have choices, they don't have options, and that they're under pressure to make a decision in the moment that they feel very unprepared for. So I, I would agree with you, Craig. I think our society has been influenced strongly by probably some organizations more than others to think that abortion is a perfectly acceptable solution when we know it really is not. Sometimes we hear this, Peter, couched in terms of an unwanted pregnancy, and maybe 
more accurately and succinctly put, an unwanted baby. Is there a misnomer to that as well? Particularly when we think about this in terms of the adoption space. I would suppose when you look at the numbers of folks out there, couples out there, that are desirous of being parents, and there's a waiting list. Sometimes people even turn to foreign overseas adoptions because of the challenges in adopting a child. It would seem to me under those terms that this notion that it's a quote-unquote unwanted pregnancy or, again, more succinctly put, unwanted child really isn't true, is it? It really is not. You're ranking in a super point here. There is, the statistics are staggering. There are uh, around a million couples in the U.S. today who are waiting to adopt a child, and there are only 18,000 children that are actually available to adopt in a given year. That's an extraordinary disparity. And what that tells you is that there are literally millions of people who desperately want a child. And for one reason or another, they can't, uh, they can't have a child on their own. And so it, it's really not true to say they're unwanted. I think when people say that, it's often through the lens of a particular person that's affected. So, for example, if you weren't planning to start a family, then indeed the pregnancy itself might be unwanted. It's an intrusion. It's an interruption. It's a burden. Um, and that's all very legitimate. The child themselves, however, is not actually the source of the problem. The child themselves has a life of their own, has a future of their own. And indeed, it's not just their future. It's the future of their children and their grandchildren. It's the multi-generational impact that every child has the potential to make. I think we all would understand that God desires every child that is created, every child that is, um, that is formed. And indeed, we know that although it is possible, and, and, and sadly, in many cases, it's, it's, it is the case that mothers and fathers are not in a position to raise the children that they have, that does not mean there are not others who are willing to step in and to take on that responsibility. So, Peter, is the message here that a child, a baby's worth is not measured based on whether or not he or she is conceived, born into a circumstance where they are, quote-unquote, wanted, planned, expected, that the child's worth is not based on that set of circumstances, but rather something that intrinsically in and of themselves, as a baby, as a child, makes them valuable, makes them a person of worth? I think as a believer, we know that the Bible speaks about the infinite value of a child's God's view is is not predicated on circumstances. Mm. He his his value on a child is infinite to the point where he would send his own son to be willing to die for each and every individual on the planet. And life we believe starts at conception. So that means that value carries through from the first moment of life through the entire life of that individual. And if God puts such a value on such a person, who are we to diminish that value in any way? It's 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 it is the case that we we recognize in ourselves how much we we believe ourselves to be valued. That's exactly how God thinks about us. We are in the palm of his hands. And so his desire is for every person to have the right to life and the ability to fulfill their potential because we have a plan and a purpose designed by him for each and every person on the planet. Well, that narrative shifts pretty dramatically in that viewpoint, doesn't it? When you look at it with that lens and realize every child fearfully and wonderfully made, as Scripture says, in the very image and likeness of God, and to take it even a step further, that he himself has breathed the very life into them. Suddenly now, that child's worth 
no bearing on the circumstances under which they were conceived whatsoever, but rather their worth is now looked at through the lens of the way God sees them. Now, toward that end, I want to come back to this topic of adoption for a moment, because it is indeed one of the real options that women have. What does that journey look like? And I understand that there's a a personal connection for you on this topic. Yes, indeed, Craig, yes. So, um, full disclosure, um, I was adopted as a baby back in the uh, 1960s, the mid-1960s when I was born. The only option that was available for uh, parents who wanted to adopt or make an adoption plan for children was really what was called a closed adoption. And that is one of the reasons I think that for many people, this decision has become a bigger decision <laughs> because the thought of not having access to your child after they're born obviously is a huge consideration for every mother and indeed every father. And that situation has changed. Today, much more common is what we know as open adoptions. And open adoptions mean that both the birth parents and the adoptive parents have rights of access to the adopted child. In some sense, they get more parents, not less parents as a result. Um, And that has certainly helped for many people. But the journey is really one where there's a meeting together of the mom who is considering what is best for her child And the adoptive parents who, as we said earlier on, there are many, many adoptive parents who are looking forward to the opportunity to raise a child as their own. And in my own case, the adoption happened actually in the hospital itself, meaning that my adoptive parents came to the hospital to pick me up after I was born. So very early, in fact, so early that I had no recollection of the event, of course. And it wasn't until I was somewhat older that my parents told me that I was adopted. That's also something people are very curious about. Well, what was that like? Did that change something about the way you felt about your adoptive parents? And I would say that from my own experience, it caused me to firstly start to recognize that these people had made a decision for me in a very special way. They had chosen me to be part of their family. That was incredibly powerful for me to realize that. Uh, I didn't just arrive. (laughs) They went and got me, if I could say it like that. Um, That was extremely powerful. I think the other consideration was, oh, There is another family that I don't know about that I'm also somehow connected to and somehow part of. And so it opened the doors to, you know, new possibilities. But I will tell you, Craig, my parents have both passed now, um, but I never considered them not to be my parents. They were my parents from day one all the way through their lives to the end of their lives. Uh, And I'm incredibly grateful, by the way, for the decision that they made. And I'm incredibly um, impacted by the decision that my birth mother made to make an adoption plan for me that, that resulted in her not seeing me for the rest of, uh, of, of her life to this point. Um, that's a big decision, and that's something that would not have been taken lightly, and I am incredibly appreciative and thankful for her decision to do that. Our conversation today on this edition of Lifeline with Peter Finter, the chairman of the board of Real Options. We'll take a brief time out, return to more of our dialogue as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline. Our visit today is with Peter Finter. Peter is the chairman of the board of Real Options. Peter, let's pick up our conversation where we left off moments before the break. And I think it's demonstrative, Peter, of uh, a tremendous degree of love. People say, how can you carry a child to term and then give it up for an adoption and call that love? But if a woman is in a set of circumstances where it's just beyond the pale, They don't want to terminate the pregnancy. They recognize that that baby, as we spoke earlier, has intrinsic worth in and of his or herself. And to willingly make the sacrifice to adopt that child 
is really indicative, I think, of, of the message you're sharing. And that is that, in a sense, you're a child that was loved twice over by your birth mother who cared enough to say, this child has a right to live, and I'm going to make the personal sacrifice to make sure that this child has a chance at life, as well as your parents, whom, as you say, made the intentional decision to say we're going to go through the hassle, the time, the expense, the process of adopting this child into our lives. So in many respects, in, in my mind's eye, that's demonstrative of a child that is incredibly loved, not only by his creator, her creator, but by the parents as well. And, and I would wonder, coming full circle to real options, women sometimes that are facing these very critical difficult decision, say, well, were I to make the decision to carry the child to term and put my baby up for adoption, wow, that's a really rough path to walk by myself. I, I don't, I'm, I'm terrified of the notion. How does an organization like Real Options come alongside women who are making this critical decision? It's a great question, Craig, because you're absolutely right. It's, 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 it is a decision that has consequences that are worked out over time. You know, by definition, the point at which these kinds of decisions are made are during pregnancy. They might be towards the beginning when the woman first realizes that she's pregnant, or it might be towards the end. Um, and it's always an option open to a mom. Um, and so we don't ask them to hurry that decision. The important decision is really to continue with the pregnancy, to see the baby come to term, and then to place the baby into the best situation for them. Um, and the mother is the one that ultimately gets to make that decision. Is it the best decision for the baby? And we like to talk about making an adoption plan for a baby today rather than giving a baby up for adoption. Because as I've mentioned already, um, open adoptions now mean that moms don't lose contact with their children. And we have many stories of patients of ours who have come through our clinics, who have successfully carried their baby to term, whose babies have then been adopted, and they continue to be able to enjoy that relationship, knowing that they made a big decision in favor of their baby. And, uh, and that almost always is a success story. In fact, the statistics tell us that over 90% of adopted children have positive feelings about their adoptions. You know, sometimes we worry that maybe the child's going to be damaged. Maybe there's going to be some terrible consequence that later on they're going to look back and say this was the wrong decision. But actually, the evidence is, um, is not the case. But to the practical question, well, what do we actually do? Well, the first thing that we're concerned about is that we are helping our patients in a safe, secure environment to think through their options. We provide data to help them. We show them whether their pregnancy is viable because we provide free ultrasounds. But we go further than that and provide the spiritual and emotional support that they're going to need to walk this whole journey. So once you're a patient of Real Options, you're always a patient of Real Options. And we provide our services free at the point of delivery. So we're not asking moms to be paying for these services as they walk through their pregnancy. And we love to continue that journey as long as they would like to go with us. We also provide pragmatic, practical support because for many moms, as we know, going through tough times need financial support, whether we can provide clothing or we can provide baby buggies or other things that will be helpful to them as they go to term. So obviously that's not relevant for every mom. If you're adopting or if your baby's going to be adopted, you don't need to invest in all of those things. But nevertheless, we provide whatever support the mother is looking for and needing. But the most important one that we have found is that emotional support, having a partner who is able to be alongside, who is able to provide a sounding board to be there when the emotions get too much. We provide all of that as well as the medical services that they need. 
to go through their pregnancy. And what a joy to be able to say a woman facing that set of circumstances with big decisions looming ahead that feels as if they're all alone, completely abandoned, no one to whom they can turn, no one that they can rely upon. And oftentimes, as we spoke earlier, grappling with a lot of a lot of misinformation or lack of information as they're making this decision to then realize that there are organizations and volunteers and people with an organization like Real Options that can stand there, not only providing the practical support, but that all-important emotional support and spiritual support there, too. If folks want to get involved in a, in a greater way, tell us a bit about how listeners right now can, in a practical sense, be supportive of the work of Real Options across the Bay Area. Thank you, Craig. I appreciate you asking that question. I think for, for most people, going to a website with more information is probably very helpful for them. So I would encourage, first of all, your listeners to go to friendsofrealoptions.net slash C-T-O-L. And that stands for Christmas Tree of Life. So friendsofrealoptions, all one word, dot net slash C-T-O-L. And the Christmas Tree of Life is really in the spirit of the Christmas season enabling uh, our supporters to choose gifts to bless one of our patients or someone in the communities that we serve. We also have an online gift catalog that people can browse uh, for women and their babies in need of formula or wipes or diapers, as an example, and to honor loved ones with a personalized gift card. So please head over to friendsofrealoptions.net slash C-T-O-L for all the ways in which you can learn more about us and also provide support. And I love it in that in that spirit of giving during this um, holiday season to be mindful that um, the um, the wise men and those that were able to follow that star in the east and present their gifts to the babe in the manger, we can do that in a sense by standing with friendsofrealoptions.net forward slash C-T-O-L and um, go online, look at the catalog, and in a real sense, give a practical gift to Jesus during this Christmas season. I love that, and I want to encourage listeners, find out more about the work of Real Options. There's opportunities to not only support in a practical way, in a financial way, but also in, through volunteerism and other ways of, of donating. And to get all the details, again, go online to friendsofrealoptions.net. And as you're thinking of your end-of-year giving, be mindful of the tremendous work that's being done by Real Options across the Bay Area, they really need your prayerful support. So think about them when you go to friendsofrealoptions.net forward slash C-T-O-L. And I would like to thank Peter Finter, the chairman of the board of Real Options, for spending a few minutes with us today. Thank you, Peter. It's been a delight. Thank you so much, Craig, and we really appreciate it.